Welcome to another edition of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with Raymond Nakamura and Alexis Jensen. And we're in the vault of the Nikkei National Museum talking to you about Thomas Shoyama. Mm. <laughs> so, some of you might not know who Thomas Shoyama is, and that's good because now you'll have this podcast to refer to. Mm. Although you should know who he is since he's, he's, he's a big, important person in terms of. Japanese Canadian society, Canadian society, really. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so, and he's close to my heart. I never met him, but I admire who this man was. And so, when I began my research, the first thing I did was take、uh, an oral history interview of him from the museum's collection and began to listen to it. And when he The first question the interviewer asks him, his first response is, Well, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself so I can understand where you're coming from and what you would like from me for this interview? And I feel that the more and more I research, the more and more this first answer of his sums him up in a nutshell. And to me, he was a thoughtful man who had the interest. And patience and ability to pull insights from people.、Hmm. And apparently,、uh, his friend and、uh, former colleague in Saskatchewan,、uh, Ken Fike,、uh, is quoted as saying, I consider him one of Canada's greatest citizens, and I say that unreservedly. Wow. Yeah. So I guess we're just going to go through his life and get a sense of, of his accomplishments through that. Uh, I imagine that one of、uh, the reasons he's so close to your heart is that he also is born in Kamloops. And I suppose he might be one of the best things to come out of Kamloops. And, and you could be the second. You could be number、okay. two. Okay. <laughs>、uh, so he was born in Kamloops in,、uh, September 24th, 1916. His、uh, parents had originally come from Kumamoto, apparently,、uh, with samurai roots. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, so, you know, that's not long after the, the Meiji、uh, Restoration, well, earlier in the,、um, those, that time period where the samurai were, this whole class was being dismantled. So、uh, I guess they were looking for other possibilities. So his father ran a bakery in Kamloops, and it, it, it was quite popular among、uh, people who were taking the railway. And I don't know where that is, but, but you were saying that there is a railway going, yeah, there's around, two. But going by there. And、uh, so he made a deal with a friend named Andy Johnson, who was in Vancouver, and arranged it so that Thomas could go to school, UBC,、uh, to stay rent free at, at the Johnsons in exchange for domestic duties.、Uh, I think this is called Schoolboy. Houseboy. Houseboy. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was not uncommon for that to happen. So in 1934, the 18 year old Tommy Shoyama left Kamloops with a small bundle of clothes, his bicycle, <laughs> and $10. And $10. Well, before we get to Vancouver, I just want to say too that、uh, Thomas's mother was Kimi Wakabayashi, and she was a picture bride who came over in 1908. And the family had. Uh, six children. Thomas was the third. And by the time he came along, the family was speaking only English. So he didn't, he didn't grow up in a Japanese household. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, according to his interview, they were the only Japanese family in Kamloops at the time.、Mm. And so they really assimilated and became Canadian,、mm-hmm. is how my understanding of it was.、Mm. 
Although when I mentioned it to my mother, mm-hmm. and she went to high school in Kamloops during the war, and said that the uh, Shoyama Bakery became a meeting place for Japanese Canadians around that time because they weren't allowed to go into the city on weekends or something, so that they would have to hang out at this bakery at the fringes of the city. And the, uh, well, that would make sense time-wise. Like while he was growing up in the thirty, yeah, like right. the twenties yeah. and thirties. They probably only assimilated with people from Canada. Hmm. Um, and then by the time the war came out, they started maybe being um, excluded from things. Hmm. Because all of a sudden they right. were Japanese oh, yeah. and yeah. not Japanese Canadians. So they yeah. um, became stronger in that their identity of mm-hmm. coming from Japan. Um, so yes, Thomas went to Vancouver in 1934. Um and he, at that point, he said in his interview, he didn't really associate with the Japanese Canadian community all that much because, as we said, he grew up in Kamloops, which was predominantly uh, not Japanese Canadian. And uh, the only Japanese Canadians he saw were at UBC. He didn't live in Palestrade. He lived, as Raymond said, with a friend of his father's. And there was one point where he did venture down to Palestrade to help a fellow student with who was from Japan, who needed help with his English while writing his master's. And at that point, Thomas's impression of Powell Street was one of a depressive place. He called it a flop house of sorts for all kinds, not just the Japanese Canadians. And I think that's just because we're in the Depression years, and that's it can't be helped. Hmm. Like it's just that, that period in time. Um, in the summers, Thomas took up jobs upcountry in pulp mills, so again, he never really mixed with Japanese Canadians, he said. Um, in 1938, he graduated from UBC with a degree in commerce and economics and tried to find a job and couldn't, so eventually ended up in Woodfiber, BC. So he must have been pretty smart to get both economics and a commerce, commerce? degree, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know if those were common things to do at the, mm. at the same time or not. But, I mean, we know he's smart. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> say that enough. that was a feat in itself. Um, and I think at Woodfiber at this point is when he became involved with the Japanese Canadian community because there was lots of Japanese Canadians up there. And um, he worked with the bricklayers specifically, and he became friends with the Higashi brothers, who were also Japanese Canadian boys. So they became important. Uh, I guess they, they got this idea of starting their own newspaper. Yeah, I think that... I should say at Woodfiber, too, they were... Because Thomas didn't speak Japanese, he was paid a lower wage. So it's this weird thing where he couldn't get a job in economics and commerce, it seems, and he couldn't get a higher-paying job within the labor force where Japanese were or Japanese nationals or Canadians were predominant. So he was discriminated from within and from without. And I think the Higashis were experiencing the same thing. And so they decided to they started talking about making a newspaper and getting a, the voice out for all discrimination and human rights in general. So this was the uh, new Canadian newspaper, and their office was on Powell Street, so I guess they must have come back to do that. Was it, I thought it was on Alexander Street. <clears throat> well, my understanding, it, it could have moved around, but, but at least some of it was that it was in that Tamura Hotel. I thought, is that the New World Those, Hotel? Yeah, the New World okay. Hotel. Yeah, that's what I... Uh, up above. And so that's right at Dunleavy, across the street from the Powell Street, the, the Powell Grounds. Okay. So right at Dunleavy and Powell. Okay. 
And um, so they set that up there. It was in English. There had been other um, newspapers for the Japanese community, but they were in Japanese. And so this was unusual in that it was specifically targeting Nisei in English. Uh, so he was writing the editorials for them. Do you know how far back the the museum here has issues? I think it might be, I think, 1939. Yeah, so from the so beginning. So we might have that, the beginning. Hmm. But he wasn't, he wasn't the, he stayed in wood fiber while the Higashi brothers. Oh, okay. So that happened later on then. So he, he, yeah. So they, they physically went and started the newspaper and then Christmas, 1938, Shoyama went to Vancouver to join them and never went back to wood fiber. And at the, at the, um, beginnings, Higashi, Shinobu Higashi was the editor of the new Canadian. And his brother was the ads guy, so he would go out and try and get ads to support the hmm. paper. And then Shinobu was married in, with a child, and because the paper made very little income, he received an offer from the Manchurian Daily News in February and accepted it. And so it was so at that, was that point in Manchuria. Yeah, and well, I would love to do another podcast about him because hit like what happened to him after he left the New Canadian is hmm. like horrible, but also fascinating. Um, just the two paths that Shoyama took and then he took mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. it have gone differently for Higashi if he had stayed. Mm. Um, but so it was at that point that Thomas became the editor. Uh, so then he, he came at an interesting time, or at least shortly after that then, well, in 1941, Pearl Harbor took place and all the, the papers in the Japanese-Canadian community were shut down. Uh, but then in January... They, the RCMP or the Security Commission, I guess, uh, realized that they needed to be able to inform people that they wanted them registered. So they they allowed the new Canadian to start up again. And it was interesting his attitude. There's a, a quote uh, by him in terms of his approach uh, to the situation that they found themselves in. Uh, it goes like, "Now that war has come, it is our responsibility to search out new ways in which we may serve our nation." One final responsibility is ours, and it is not the less heavy. It is a challenge not to despair, nor to take refuge in bitterness and hate. This tragic conflict will set back, but it must not destroy our aspirations to walk with honor and with dignity and with equality as Canadians among Canadians. Where did you find that? I forget, but okay. it, it was <laughs> it, really one nice. of his, yeah, it, it was one of his uh, editorials. So... As Raymond said, all other Japanese language newspapers were shut down, but the RCMP, with censorship, allowed the new Canadian to remain open. And it was actually, the paper was um, then subsidized by the BC Security Commission, who was the Canadian government in charge of interning Japanese. And they went to the new Canadian and asked them if they could print their notices uh, in both uh, English and Japanese, and at the time the new Canadian did not have Japanese typewriters, so they said no because they didn't have the means. And so the BCSC arranged that the new Canadian could move into the office of the Continental Daily Times, who had the equipment, and that's how the new Canadian became a bilingual paper. And and I guess back then, before computers, it's not a trivial thing to do Japanese because no. you need like 2,000 characters. Yeah. So it's not like a little typewriter thing or even just a little box of typesetting. Um, uh, you would need all those different characters and they're sorted out. I, I haven't seen... Well, it would a, be a printing press. Yeah, style, so yeah. Scenario, but with the typeset would be 
Japanese characters, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sure... I mean, when they said no, they it wasn't because they were trying to start something. They really couldn't do it, so they needed the help of that. And so the paper stayed in the, in the Continental Daily Times until September 1942, when they finally moved to Caslow and Shoyama with them. And according to Shoyama, they were the last to leave. Vancouver. Yeah, they were the last ones to leave. So they watched it, like, uh, the community just disband and move on. Mm-hmm. And so Thomas and the paper stayed in Caslow until 1945. And it's, a, it's interesting to note that his family, who were in Kamloops, were never touched by the internment. So I feel like his perspective of the internment would be one, obviously as an insider because he was in Caslow, but I feel like he, because he was one of the last ones to leave, and he must have known at the back of his head he could always go to Kamloops if he wanted to. Hmm. So he had a m- more sense of freedom. I get So since they were outside of the um, protected zone, the 100-mile mm-hmm. protected zone. They were left alone. And so in Caslow, even now, I guess, the, there's the Langham Hotel where they were set up, right? And, yeah. and And they seem to have materials from that time, at least yeah. when I went to visit. Me too. A, a display there. So... Um, the paper, after ni- 1944, um, the BCSC stopped uh, providing subsidies to the paper, and the paper at that point survived off of paid subscriptions from people all across the country. And the reason why is because the paper was described as a lifeline to the Japanese-Canadian community at the time, as it was the only paper that uh, dealt with them their issues specifically, and it allowed, like... It's certain internment camps to know what other what were happening in other internment camps. So it really was a lifeline. Mm-hmm. And it and it's interesting the fine line that he must have had to walk that he he couldn't um, be overly critical of the government because they were mm-hmm. censoring what he was writing. Yeah. Um, uh, so he he had to have this balance. But there's a quote of his approach that um, we had a sense of mission in the sense that it was very important to do everything we could to sustain morale, he said in retrospect. Um, We had to tell people, look, in spite of all these terrible things that have happened to you, stand on your own feet. Look within yourself to your own strength and self-respect and your own sense of dignity. And I mean, it's... It kind of has has echoes of Churchill a bit, don't you think? Mm, Well, And what was going on in England? Like how he was rallying the people so they they wouldn't give up in spirit. Right, right. Yeah, within this fine line of, of not berating yeah. the, the, the treatment per se, yeah. but, but to encourage them to, to carry on. Yeah. So the paper moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1945. And uh, so that was, that was after the atomic bomb um, bombs uh, and Japan's surrender. And so you would have thought that everything would go back to being as it was, but they, the people of Japanese descent were still not allowed to return to the coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had the option of going east of the Rockies or to Japan. I'm not sure why they went to Winnipeg, but I guess that was central. And in the meantime, uh, Shoyama decided that he would volunteer for the Canadian Army Intelligence Corps. So they had uh, a boot camp in Brantford, Ontario, and he was in this Canadian Army Japanese language school. So certain other Nisei, I think, were in that for intelligence purposes, dealing with the Japanese so that they knew Japanese and English. But as we were saying, he wasn't brought up 
using Japanese. So even though he studied hard, he he didn't really have the same grasp of Japanese language that the other ones did. Yeah. So eventually he, he became, uh, he left in 1946 as a sergeant. Was he, do you know if he ever went to um, all of those other places that, I, I don't know, but I don't think so. I, I okay. don't have the sense that that happened. Okay. So in 1946, Thomas went to Regina, Saskatchewan, and there he became an employee and member of to- Tommy Douglas's circle. And at the time, Tommy Douglas was the premier of Saskatchewan, and he is most famous for getting Medicare up and running in um, in in Saskatchewan, but then in Canada as a whole. And uh, Thomas was a key person to help him do this. Yeah, so um, you might have seen the, I think it was the CBC who had the greatest Canadian contest. And so I think Tommy Douglas was who ended up being selected as the greatest Canadian of all time. So this is quite significant that really Tom Shoyama became his number two guy in in some ways. Um, Also, the way that he got into that, apparently he met a George Tamaki who he knew from university. And this George was already in the the CCF, the the party uh, called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And I know that that organization had also been um, leaders in decrying the treatment of Japanese Canadians, and in particular the deportation of them to Japan. So there were political reasons why uh, they would see them as being sympathetic to to people of Japanese descent. Okay. I didn't know that. And so uh, so then he went, and then the, sorry, what was the name of the uh, CC? The yeah, party? the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And which, then it became the NDP, Yeah, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So that was... That was what he was involved with directly after the war. And during his time in Saskatchewan, he married Lorna Moore, who was a secretary, and they had a daughter named Kiyomi. And um, she died of pancreatic cancer in the early 90s. And it's something, according to Midge Ayukawa, that Thomas never recovered from. Um, she talks about how after his daughter passed away he would be she was an artist and she had drawings and paintings and they surrounded him Mm. they were hung all over his house and so he really cared for his daughter Mm. and they were really close so the family stayed in regina until 1964 and then they moved to ottawa so there were uh big political changes that were taking place Uh, his experience within the saskatchewan government uh was involved in the the Ministry of the Finance and, and as an economic advisor. So I guess he was able to apply his university training um, and I suppose also his ability to deal with difficult situations. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting description that he might be in tense meetings with the Treasury Board or Cabinet and then he would get up and start watering the plants during the middle of the meeting. Really? So he had, <laughs> he had a certain poise, I guess, or... or however. Uh, and then later, when uh, Tommy Douglas became the head of the national NDP, uh, Shoyama actually was a campaign strategist and um, helped out in a lot of different ways, including providing chicken soup when the leader got sick. <laughs> uh, so Ottawa, there is, there is a big shift, and uh, they, they called it the Saskatchewan Mafia. There were all these um, bureaucrats from Saskatchewan who went to work for the federal government rather than the provincial. And um, Subsequently, then, he, he, he was working under uh, 
Prime Ministers Trudeau, uh, Turner, and Chrétien, and among the the first visible minorities to be considered a, to become a deputy minister. So I didn't realize that deputy ministers of a given thing are like the highest bureaucrat, mm-hmm. and they answer specifically to the minister. Yeah. So uh, eventually, he became the deputy minister of finance, and that's a that's a a heavy-duty thing. I mean, that's that, that's like the most significant um, bureaucratic position yeah. that, that you're going to have. And he was involved in this uh, creation of, of Medicare within Canada, uh, applying what, what had been developed in Saskatchewan. He was also involved in, um, during the, the energy crisis in the 70s, he was involved in trying to deal with that as a, a deputy minister of, of energy, mines, and resources. And uh, later became uh, an advisor to the Prime Minister about repatriating the Canadian Constitution. So there was um, another interview that I heard of him where it's almost casual how somebody was asking them about um, the constitutional issues. And he was supporting Trudeau's concerns about the loss of, of federal power, even though he acknowledged that maybe in the future you have to devolve power to to provinces so he was he was continuing to be thoughtful of it even years after he was out of government yeah and he talks about i think i heard the same interview and he talks about the long view mm-hmm. he casually says that word and that really stuck with me i think that's how he thought he always thought in the long view as opposed to the short term and that's how he strategized and i think that's missing a lot in today's politics is it's very yes you. right and so it's unfortunate we don't have people more like thomas Oyama in government now right well i guess that's the distinction between politicians and the people who and work in and public servants yeah, yeah the importance of, of public service i hadn't really thought about that aspect of it before of people the importance of people who are actually doing the work yeah uh um but it, 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 evidently he was significant in this area. In 1978, he became an officer of the Order of Canada. And in 1979, he received the Outstanding Achievement Award of the Public Service of Canada for strength of character, inexhaustible energy, and absolute dedication to Canadian interests. So, um, yeah, he uh, retired uh, at 64 in 1980, but then was still um, dealing with other... Um, issues on a on a ongoing basis. And well, he was on the McDonald Commission. Yeah, right on the economy. Yeah, yeah which was a uh, pretty important uh, pretty important thing. Yeah, I mean Canada. those hamburgers. You wouldn't think that that, but they do have <laughs> no. a big impact on the. Oh, that's a different McDonald. Yeah, it's a different McDonald Commission. Um, maybe should we point out what the McDonald Commission is then? Okay. There was three broad themes, and one was. It was basically a report that was presented in 1983, I think, or 1985, between those dates. And uh, Canada needed to foster a more flexible economy, capable of adjusting to international and technological changes. Um, it recommended various reforms uh, within the welfare state model, emphasizing sho- social equity and economic efficiency. And the third was it recommended the adoption of an elected Senate in order to better represent Canada's diverse regions. And I feel like all of those things, you can see Thomas Shoyama in it. Hmm. So he seems to be at the right place at the right time, influ- and his influence gets through, mm-hmm. is how I feel. 
it seems like he was sort of an advisor or something to the redress process as well, which although got resolved in 1988, he mm-hmm. would have known people in government. And and it doesn't seem to be talked about a lot, but it seems like his presence was probably something. I would think so. It would be one of the first people I would contact yeah, if I was sure. trying to go about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the 80s, he moved to Victoria and became a visiting professor in, a pu- in public administration at the University of Victoria. And Mijayukawa was actually one of his students. And I like her description of him as a professor. What she said was, he always arrived with his huge briefcase, which resembled a giant doctor's bag. And out of it, he pulled pages and pages of material and at least a dozen books. And so I, I like that picture. <laughs> and she also said he had a compelling way that inspired all students to do their best. Well, I like the part where she said that he, he, he always uh, carefully followed the speed limit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's something about the sorts of people who do that, I guess. Yeah, and he wouldn't turn uh, left when you weren't allowed to. He, made, he would always drive a block down the street to turn right where it was legal, even though everybody turned left <laughs> at that point. She always was amazed that he would do that. So, I mean, it tells you how he must have been as a public servant. Like, he really obeyed the laws and wasn't going behind, like, in dark rooms making negotiations. Right, yeah, anything. yeah, that's right. To be a stand-up It's person. that thing of, of character yeah. being how you behave when nobody's watching. Yeah. Uh, and apparently he, st- he was just supposed to be a visiting professor at UVic, and, and then he stayed on and he, he would get $1.00. Years. Like, oh, really? It, it was just sort of this, yeah. Oh, he wasn't making money from it. Okay. He just enjoyed the job itself. I guess so. Okay. So he died in December 2006 at the age of 90. Um, do you ha- do you want to say anything more about him? Uh, well, there are a few other uh, igno- recognitions. In 1992, he received the Order of the Sacred Treasure, which uh, reflected contributions to the Japanese-Canadian community, and that actually comes from the Japanese government. And he was instrumental in fundraising for the Nikkei Center. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it's interesting to think about his contributions as a Canadian first, you know, the, the, the fact that there's this Pearson Shoyama Institute think tank, you know, that is... Sometimes we're looking for people who are Japanese Canadians, since that's what our, our podcast is about. But yeah. it's, his contributions to Canada are are so profound, and he happens to be Japanese, Japanese Canadian. Canadian. Um, somebody else was describing Paul Korea, the hockey player, as being a, a, a really good hockey player first, who happens to be of Japanese descent. So, so the the priority of it is. It's similar. Put it in that <laughs> no, but I mean, he he was a great man. I guess is what that means. Yeah, I, I like the also the quote that Midge had in her article in the Nikkei Images uh, of the expression "nana korobi ya oki," which is uh, "fall down seven times, get up eight, Yeah, and the idea of perseverance and 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 um, seemed to be important both in his character and and perhaps to the Japanese Canadian community as a whole. Yeah. So in the oral interview um, that he conducted, at the end of it, he was asked what he was. And I'll just list what he said. He was an editor, an intelligence man in the army, an economic research assistant, an economic advisor to the government of Saskatchewan, an economist on the Economic Council of Canada, deputy minister of mines and resources, 
Deputy Minister of Finance, Chairman of Atomic Energy of Canada, Constitutional Advisor to Council Privy Office, a member of the Royal Commission, which is the Macdonald Commission, and a visiting professor at the School of Administration. And so he was quite a lot of things throughout his life. He wasn't mm -hmm. just one thing. And I, I have a quote, I have two quotes of his too that I just wanted to say that were he had written in the New Canadian as the editor. Um, it is idle, though, to point out a past record just for the sake of a pat on the back. We study history to learn lessons for today. So, too, we look back on our own records to learn something about ourselves. And then the second one is, it is important to point out that your own ability can overcome many difficulties if you are doing something worthwhile. And I think those are good mantras to go about your life with. Hmm. And hopefully that applies to our podcast, but I don't know if we could put <laughs> yes. it in the same category. Especially for the lessons of today. So I'm sure there's lessons you can pull out for today. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's all. Do you have anything else you would like to say about Shayama? I'm sure that we could go on for quite some time, but we'll... <laughs> Leave it there. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian. To me. With me, Alexis Jensen. And me, Rami Nakamura.